John, do you have a sense that you're leaving right when it's getting good? Or are you intending to continue to be a presence in this space? Oh, it's on its way. It doesn't need me anymore. No. Welcome to Hymnscast. My guest today is John Sharp, currently director of Thought Advisory at Hymns for one more day, <laughs> and then he begins a well-earned retirement. Uh, John has been in the digital health field for maybe 20 years. Uh, he is one of those people who knows everyone, who everyone knows, um, important figure in the Personal Connected Health Alliance, founding board member at Node Health and a longtime informatics worker at the Cleveland Clinic, and an adjunct professor at Kent State. Thanks so much for being on the show, John. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to get you on before you uh, bow out of, uh, <laughs> of your full-time gig at HIMSS, um, really just to talk a little bit about your career in digital health, and more importantly, I think, what you've seen, um, how you know, the evolution of the industry uh, in the time that you've been involved in it. But just get started. Um, give me a little bit of a, a rundown of how you ended up in this sort of space. It's a long story. I'll give you the short version. Uh, actually, I, I started my career as a oncology social worker. And uh, evolving through that in the early days of the web, uh, I joined uh, some listservs, particularly one that uh, related to cancer, uh, and really found uh, the value of connecting people through uh, digital in the early days of the web. And then moving on, seeing uh, a lot more value as uh, more sophisticated websites came around and discussion boards and um, seeing the ability to integrate data. One of my, uh, or my first presentation at a HIMSS conference was actually with one of the um, associate CIOs at, at uh, Cleveland Clinic on physician portals. So already seeing the uh, value of integrating data uh, for physicians, but also um, later seeing the value of that for patients and um, actually did some support on the early patient portal. Um, <clears throat> but then um, moving on from there, I, the physician portal and other stuff related to the web it was also at when I made a career switch actually in 1999, dating back uh, just before Y2K uh, in, uh, on the web team at the Cleveland Clinic. So building early websites, internal, external, uh, and patient-facing, consumer-facing. <clears throat> and then uh, from there went to uh, research informatics, which was much more um, analytics-oriented. Uh, although it was also involved in a project there that was directly patient-facing on uh, a research project on uh, patient navigators. Uh, so, And then from there was recruited to 
HIMSS staff, particularly in the area of the what we called at that time the connected patient. It was really patient engagement. Uh, and uh, from there shifted over to the Personal Connected Health Alliance, doing a lot of the same things, really, the uh, trying to amplify the patient voice, understanding how digital technology can improve care. What was the point where you realized that digital health or connected health um, had emerged as a space distinct from health IT, you know, was going to be sort of a, a cottage industry almost? Well, I saw uh, some of the early innovations. Um, I also, I attended actually the first Health 2.0 conference. I think that was 2007. Sounds I right. Believe so. A little before my time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, saw a lot of the innovation there that was coming up both uh, from some of the big players like Google, but also uh, a lot of new uh, innovative companies, some of which survived, some who didn't, um, and also attending other conferences like uh, there were a few years when there was one called Medicine 2.0 in Toronto, uh, which is more of an international uh, and a little more academic, but still very innovation focused, and uh, saw all kinds of possibilities for um, connecting patients and giving patients access to their records so they could uh, work on improving their own health. Conferences and, and also Twitter have been a big part of how you've um, built such an incredible network in this space. Um, and I want to just talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the people you've met, the people who you know have made connected health digital health into a reality um is there anything that ties them together or is there any way that you would characterize the um the community around digital yeah health? i think the for me the community grew both uh while well, initially at conferences and then beyond conferences through social media um uh for instance at that first medicine 2.0 conference um, I met, um, or might have been the second one, I met ePatient Dave, for one. Uh, but at that first conference, there was a small group, handful of us who were on Twitter and already communicating and uh, making nasty comments about speakers and, oh, you should come to my session, it's much more interesting. <laughs> so it was already interactive there. Um, and then, for instance, a, a friend of mine, uh, Lucien Engelin, who you might know from the Netherlands, um, emailed me. He didn't attend the conference. He emailed me afterwards because he had noticed my blog and said, do you think I should start a blog? And then he went way beyond me, uh, both in social media, developing his own conferences, doing a TEDx in uh, Maastricht. And uh, so... Uh, having that kind of influence of um, helping people launch into social media and be part of this uh, larger digital health community has been, really been uh, gratifying. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I want to jump way ahead um, because my 
my perception and a lot of the perception of a lot of folks I've talked to is that this field, especially around like telehealth and telemedicine, but even more generally around connect health and digital health, it was sort of, it was inching along, it was growing, but maybe not as fast as anyone wanted to. And then uh, COVID-19 this past year has just been such a game changer and an accelerant. Um, I mean, would you say that's accurate? How do you think that the space as you got to know it has changed in this last year because of this global pandemic? Well, I think there has been a big change. Some people talk about, it may have even been the title of one of your articles, that, um, what was it, something like uh, 10 years of growth in six weeks or something like that. You know, it's just, uh, and we've seen that in telehealth with a very uh, rapid adoption and broad um, <clears throat> application of platforms, uh, and it was helpful, of course, for a lot of those telehealth platforms to already exist. Um, but I think the the other part that we sometimes miss when we just talk, when we're just thinking about purely uh, video visits, um, is uh, remote monitoring, and not. Um, I think that's been a little more broadly adopted, but. Um, it's also been adopted on the consumer side and the consumers seeing value for it, like how many people have bought uh, pulse oximeters as a result of this epidemic as an introduction to um, digital health tools in the home and being able to, if you have a telehealth visit with your physician to be able to give them discrete data and that in itself is a leap forward. Um, but I think the, you know, there's some people predicting that now we're going to see a big tapering off and it's going to go back to where it was before, you know, 1% to 5% adoption. I don't think so. I think it will continue to, it just partly because the epidemic has lasted so long, unfortunately, but uh, partly because people see the value now and um, uh, Rob Havasey of the PCH Alliance has a new um, uh, survey results from consumers seeing that it's not just millennials who are interested in this but really all age groups to different degrees that really see the value of telehealth, the convenience and that it can really uh, enable a good connection with their physician uh, or any provider. Um, so I think there, but I think for uh, remote monitoring specifically to be more broadly uh, adopted or, and uh, other kinds of virtual care, virtual coaching and so on, um, we really need uh, changes in incentives. So telehealth still isn't paid as well as in-person visits. Um, remote monitoring is has uh, CPT codes, but they're kind of complex and awkward. You almost have to have your own st whole staff just versed in that to be able to make it happen. But I think under value-based care, if you're really trying to keep people with chronic illness healthy um, or as healthy as they can be and reduce uh, complications, 
I think there's real value for virtual care uh, going forward. And that, I think, will be the real game changer. Yeah, I mean, something like Teladoc and Livongo's merger, um, which really kind of is like taking a telehealth company um, and adding a chronic condition management um, component, it seems to me like one sort of way of, uh, of raising the stakes now that it, video visits have sort of become table stakes and for, the, you know, for that kind of private industry to, to push ahead. But I wonder if that's where um, virtual visits need to go, where we think about them not just as a, you know, a, a video chat with your doctor, but also you know, a component of um, monitoring devices you get in the mail and an app that you learn to use and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think the, the my real um, interest is in uh, health behavior change, and particularly seeing. I mean, Livongo is one example, but it, the others like uh, Omada Health and Lark Health that have come out of this um, diabetes prevention model and made it digital. They are expanding into other conditions now and not just prevention but um, chronic care management and I think this whole uh, virtual coaching sometimes with additional uh, equipment you know whether it's a wireless scale or blood pressure monitor that reports the data back in a way they're um, changing becoming in a way, primary care. And that combined with, uh, as my friend Jane Saracen Khan notes, that combined with um, uh, retail clinics is also undermining primary care. So the future of primary care, I think, is in question and primary care docs are really having a problem uh, maintaining their practice and uh, continuing their fee-for-service business model. So I think we're beginning to see a shift there uh, with or without the pandemic, but maybe more so with the pandemic. And I think uh, primary care in the future is going to be very different. And we all know that, you know, with, with these uh, virtual coaching apps, that they're much more successful than seeing a, a physician once a month or once a year who says you should lose weight that or you should you know you're you have high blood pressure I'll give you a prescription and you should measure your blood pressure every day that doesn't happen uh, you really need uh, that coaching piece to make it become a habit yeah I think on some level right now the trade-off is sort of depth versus breadth right you you can still see your primary care provider for more more different kinds of things that, that you might not even know what they are than you know you can with one of these these services but but if you know that what you have is diabetes and you need to learn to manage it or, or hypertension or even increasingly you know mental health struggles anxiety depression you, you know then these apps are really uh, really coming a long way and, and they've got a lot of efficacy data to back it up so it's not just us saying <laughs> looks good yeah and I think uh, mental health services will be changed forever I mean that's where I don't think a, a adoption of telehealth will decrease um, 
Now, apps are a different piece, and uh, uh, another colleague, uh, John Toros, who you may know from uh, uh, Beth Israel, has uh, a digital psychiatry unit there where he's uh, actually evaluating digital health apps uh, for mental health. And um, the short version is they're not there yet. There are very few that are really working well enough to uh, demonstrate effectiveness. But certainly uh, teletherapy is working, and a lot of people are, are very glad to have that as a lifeline now, but also as uh, routine care, as in the case of the VA. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's a space that's really rapidly changing. I mean, I I think I've started hearing ads for better help on, um, you know, on my podcasts and not my digital health podcasts, my, like, normal people podcasts, because uh, stuff's getting such big reach, you know, and you used to, you know, back when people still took the subway in Boston, I remember uh, that company Roman, now Roe, took over the um, South... Uh, South Station uh, subway and huge banner ads all over the place. So it's been really interesting to watch this stuff go from kind of like stuff that we only really saw when we were at work to really just being out there in the world in such a present, prescient way. Yeah, I was going to say the uh, you have <clears throat> uh, maybe there's some advantage for uh, the Lavango and Teladoc because. Um, with a lot of the virtual coaching companies, the missing piece is they don't prescribe drugs. And then, um, and then there are other startups who are working on uh, medication management adherence. And they're, um, but they're kind of separate. And then you have, yeah, a Roman or Roe that is, gives prescriptions and then hey, you're on your own, <laughs> you know, so it's not that different from uh, primary care, although obviously they don't have the diagnostic services um, that uh, a full-scale health system would have. So, uh, again, are these innovations actually fragmenting care, uh, and how can we uh, pull all that together to really um, make a difference in terms of outcomes. We used to ask who is going to own telehealth. That used to be a debate in this space. Is it going to be the traditional brick-and-mortar providers? Is it going to be the payers who offer it as an insurance benefit? Is it going to be these new um, you know, independent third-party companies that are offering it directly, You know, MD Live, Teladoc? Um, and I think that that question ne- was never really answered, although I... You know, I, I think it's more like uh, exactly like you said. It's fragmented. So the question is, who's going to own what? You know, how are each of these stakeholders going to fit into the care ecosystem, and for for an individual or for patients in general? Yeah, I think. Well, I think there's some patients, and this may be in the uh, among uh, the older category. Um, that they still want to see their um, their own doctor and maybe would prefer that in telehealth as well when they use telehealth. Um, so uh, 
you know, is the best solution for the big health systems to provide a white label service. Uh, I know the Cleveland Clinic, what uh, they're doing, um, now I forget which company they're partnering with, but actually developed a um, external company that's partnership between a, a telemedicine company and their health system. So they can provide, and I think also that there are a lot of patients who uh, trust their health system in general and would prefer to see, have a telehealth visit with that health system and not just any random doctor. Uh, So if they have a a white label on a teledoc or uh, MD Live or one of the other services, that would be their preference because they know they're getting a, a doctor they trust. You know, is that part of the solution? I think that combine uh, one of the advantages there, of course, is that the docs also would have access to their medical records. Right. If they're on a single, you know, if the health system is on a single or in some kind of integrated EMR, and then you call into that system for a telehealth appointment, then they have your records there. If it's just a um, a third-party telehealth company with no access to your records, that that's when you get into some of the issues, and that's I think that's where the over-prescribing studies have uh, found when you know you don't really have those records to make. Uh, a better medical decision. John, do you have a sense that you're leaving right when it's getting good? Or are you intending <laughs> to continue to be a presence in this space? Oh, it's on its way. It doesn't need me anymore. No. <laughs> no, it is very, uh, very exciting to see all these changes. I'm not going to be totally out of the loop. And uh, you'll still see me on LinkedIn and Twitter for sure. Uh, maybe not quite as active, but I'll be there. I, it's too hard to give up on this, uh, yeah, this exciting time. So, uh, you know, I'll I'll be in the mix somehow. Um, any big retirement plans? Are you going to write a book or anything? Well, I always say the uh, travel when it's safe again. If not next year, the year after. <laughs> Uh, might write a book. Um, and you'll and, still be teaching a little bit, right? And what? You'll still be teaching a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. I'm teaching at uh, Kent State University in a health and informatics program, teaching two courses next year. So uh, that will keep me busy as well. Any other big trends that, that you um, have seen that you're interested in talking about or... Any big questions you have about what's going to happen next? Uh, well, I I hope, as I mentioned earlier, that the incentives shift, and um, hopefully, in the new administration, the uh, for instance, the CMS Innovation Center will offer more uh, of a push toward value based care. Um, the other uh, one, other really innovative area that I think needs more exposure is getting a little more now is 
uh, virtual reality. I just finished uh, Brendan Spiegel's book uh, called VRX. Uh, yes, and we did an episode about that. It's really, I have it on my shelf, but I haven't yeah, picked it up yet. It's quite a... Uh, he admits that he gets over-enthusiastic about it, and but he has a whole chapter, too, on ethics and uh, potential downsides. So he's facing it realistically, and I think... Uh, but I think the applications, particularly in pain control, but also in mental health, are incredible, and um, I hope will be more widely adopted uh, quickly in the future, and that we'll see more of what he calls uh, virtualist or virtual medicine in the sense of virtual reality. Yeah, it seems like a it. We, it'll be interesting to see how that piece of the puzzle gets integrated with the other two pieces we talked about. And I would even say digital therapeutics more broadly as a, as a fourth piece of the puzzle. Right, right. yeah, and digital therapeutics. You know, is VR a form of digital therapeutics? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe some people would define it as that. But yeah, digital therapeutics and uh, getting pharma more involved in uh, digital health, I think will be encouraging not not in the sense of having just having an app for every drug that doesn't make sense but uh, if they and the uh, payers can get together on and providers on how to manage uh, chronic care as we were talking about I think that uh, will have the biggest impact well it is certainly an exciting time um, and John, you've certainly had an incredible career. We'll miss you at Hims. I'm glad to hear you. You'll still be hanging around social media, and hopefully, we'll we'll see you again. And of course, we'd love to have you back on the show if you ever feel like popping in. Sure, be glad to. <laughs> um, but for now, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you all, listeners, for listening. Um, I'll include some miscellaneous links uh, in the show notes to some of the topics that we've touched on, um, some some of the things we've uh, we've covered in the, the Hymns publications, where you can learn a little more. And uh, I'll include a link to John's Twitter as well, <laughs> just in case you you don't already follow him. I think almost everyone does. Just uh, ten thousand of my closest friends. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, John. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, And until next time, everybody, stay safe.